Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury, a podcast for people living in our area, brought to you by the leading health experts servicing our community. Our program is brought to you by St John of God Healthcare's Hawkesbury District Health Service, your local hospital positioned in the heart of the magnificent Hawkesbury Valley. Health professionals in conversation, talking about what matters most to our community. We cover all range of topics, from the latest innovations, fascinating histories of conditions and treatments, to the ailments that are particularly prevalent in the Hawkesbury. With a panel of health experts, we'll explore everything health-related from advice, insights and access. Brought to you by our community, for our community. The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. It should not be relied on to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any disease or as a substitute for the specific advice of a health professional. Hawkesbury District Health Service does not assume liability for the accuracy or completeness of the information. If you are seeking advice relevant to your particular circumstances or are feeling unwell, you should seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any surgical or invasive procedure carries risks. Before proceeding, you should seek a second opinion from an appropriately qualified health practitioner. Welcome to Healthy Hawkesbury. I'm Dr Michael Crampton, a Windsor GP for over 23 years, and I'm also the Integrating Care Clinical Lead for the Nepean Blue Mountains Primary Health Network. Today, we're at Hawkesbury Hospital, and we're talking about breathing issues, a subject that I'm particularly passionate about. We breathe in and out thousands of times a day and rarely give it a thought until it starts to cause us trouble. Breathing issues can occur for many reasons, and often they're dismissed as a normal part of ageing, so often people don't talk to their doctors about them. But it's something patients should be talking to us about, because they could be experiencing a wide range of issues that could be easily treated. As GPs, there are conditions we see regularly in our practice that cause breathing problems, but on occasions, these symptoms may be an indication of something more serious, like lung cancer, pulmonary embolism, congestive heart failure, COPD, or some kind of arrhythmia. So if you or your loved ones are experiencing breathlessness or have one of these conditions, this program may be of interest to you. Now also with the added complications of COVID-19, where shortness of breath is one of the hallmark symptoms of the virus, it's now more important than ever to seek medical advice as soon as possible if you develop increasing shortness of breath. While we know that breathlessness may not always be serious, in some cases, it's a sign that something is wrong with your heart or your lungs. Both organs are involved in transporting oxygen to your tissues and removing carbon dioxide from there. And problems with either of these organs affect your breathing. And this is a particularly significant issue for our Hawkesbury community because residents of this district have markedly higher rates of circulatory and chronic respiratory disease compared to those in metro areas. To understand what causes breathlessness, what it means for your health, and what you should do if you're experiencing it, we're talking to two of Hawkesbury District Health Service's leading specialists, respiratory physician Dr Wajid Ahmed and cardiologist Dr Grant Shalaby. Welcome Grant and Wajid. It's great to be speaking to both of you today. You're two specialists who know this community really well. Grant, you're a cardiologist who's worked here for over 10 years. To provide our listeners with a bit of context, can you tell us why you chose to specialise in cardiology 
And what brought you to work in the Hawkesbury? Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I must say throughout my training, I enjoyed my cardiology terms and I had some personal contact with cardiology as a, one of my close family members had been quite unwell through my childhood. So I guess I'd been on the other side of the fence, so to speak, and that may have uh, fueled my desire to enter cardiology. I also had a number of friends who entered cardiology training and they all seemed to be loving it. So I guess we do things for various reasons, some of them emotional and some of them practical. But I've really enjoyed my time as a cardiologist and I've enjoyed my time coming to the Hawkesbury. I originally came here because I'd trained at Nepean Hospital and there was a need for a physician at this hospital. But I've really enjoyed staying here. It has a unique feel about it. It's in some ways like being in the country, but in other ways you're in the city too. And the medicine, the mix of medicine is amazing. I thought you'd say the GPs are great as well. Oh, that too, of course. <laughs> and Wajid, you're our resident expert in uh, respiratory conditions. What drew you to this field and what brought you to the Hawkesbury? Thanks, Michael. I had a bit of a different experience than Grant. So look, uh, in the initial part of my hospital medical career, I was not too much interested in any specific field. I liked most like general and acute care medicine. But then I did a term in Westmead Hospital in respiratory medicine, and I found that it's really a mix of respiratory medicine involves a lot of general and acute care medicine as well. And since then, I developed interest, and then I did my advanced training in North Shore Hospital, and I had a similar experience, and I continued on. And as Grant said, I'm enjoying my field as well. It has both this procedural aspect to it, as well as the general medicine. Uh, with regards to Hawkesbury Hospital, again, I always liked working in small country site hospital. I did part of my training, in fact, uh, and Dubbo as general and acute care medicine, and I also thought there's a need for a respiratory specialist here. Currently, probably I'm the only respiratory specialist in the hospital who comes here regularly. And again, there's a lot of pathology, uh, and working closely in the community, I really enjoying it. I can certainly say it's great having both of you here in the community. Uh, it, it really adds value to how we are here in the Hawkesbury. So you've both worked in this area for years. So unless it's COVID, shortness of breath rarely comes on suddenly. Uh, so what are some of the underlying problems that cause shortness of breath? Grant? Well, most commonly in my practice, Michael, there would be patients who had a degree of either heart failure or coronary artery disease, which is blocked artery, so to speak, for our general listeners. Those are by far and away the most common cardiac problems. Heart rhythm disturbances where people get an irregular heartbeat are also extremely common. And there is such a different spread of possible causes for shortness of breath, however, that you have to keep an open mind. And Wadjid has his own quite long list, I'm sure, and I'll let him take over. Uh, yeah, look, as Grant said, shortness of breath has a wide differential from mild to severe problems. From respiratory perspective, uh, it all depends on the history clinical exam, but the commonest one which I see is basically uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases such as emphysema, chronic bronchitis, asthma. And then in the elderly population, we see some interstitial lung diseases and of course a whole variety of chest infections. And as Grant said, there's a mix of diseases between cardiology and respiratory. Again, obesity, related pulmonary hypertension. So we share quite a few things together as well. So you've both mentioned a series of things that relate to breathlessness. 
uh, I guess I'd like to now talk about risk factors associated with some of these conditions. And I'll steal your thunder by saying that the first one's going to be smoking because that's common to both of you. But Grant, what are some of the risk factors associated with the conditions you see? Thanks, Mike. Yeah, look, I think Wajid touched on obesity. And unfortunately, in this part of Sydney, we've had quite a problem managing obesity. And it is a great contributor to a lot of the issues that I deal with. So the irregular heartbeat that I refer to is a condition called atrial fibrillation, which is very common, particularly in people over the age of 75. And it's strongly related to obesity. I think in my practice, obesity is a huge issue. The other issues, as you mentioned, obviously smoking, but also things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, all of which can in some ways be pulled back towards obesity. And I think really the lack of condition that people have as well. Unfortunately, there's a need to encourage people to look after themselves and do more exercise and be more active. And I'll let Wajid take over. Yeah, look, I agree. I think we share the same risk factors. By far, the most common for respiratory issues are, is the smoking and, of course, obesity. And apart from that, people lack up insight into the problems, not seeking early attention and delayed presentation. Um, so all these things basically lead to the respiratory problems as well as, I think, cardiology. What about any environmental factors, Rajit? Uh, so yes, people in particularly who had exposure to uh, industrial dust or chemicals such as uh, coal mine workers as well as asbestos exposure. So yes, we do see that as well uh, with occupational dust diseases as well. So a small percentage of my patients do belong to that group, yeah. Anything from environment in your case, Grant? Surprisingly, I mean, I imagine Wajid had more of a problem with the bushfires that we had last year than I did. It still had effects. Often when the respiratory system becomes decompensated, I find that it triggers all the underlying cardiac problems as well. So it becomes a, a, a vicious cycle, so to speak, as you would well know in general practice, Michael. Absolutely. What about family history? Look, family history is obviously a risk factor and particularly in people who get early disease. In the older population, we don't consider it so much of a risk factor, but it is still important to know someone's family history. The real problem that we have is that it's not a modifiable issue. It may give us pointers to what we need to look for, but we often can make little difference to someone's uh, risk profile by looking at their family history. Family history involved in respiratory disease? Uh, yeah, look, a couple of diseases in particular, uh, such as people with asthma, if they have family history as well, uh, and when you, when sometimes it becomes difficult to differentiate, and particularly when they're smokers and they present at a relatively early age, so then family history is important to know. Same goes with emphysema and people who have recurrent clots, pulmonary embolism, family history is important there as well. So, yeah, definitely. It's important from our point of view as GPs because we're trying to prevent these conditions coming on. So we certainly recognise it as one of the uh, one of the risk factors to make us focus more intently, if you like, on some some subset of the population if they've got a positive family history. So both Grant and Wajid, when you see a patient presenting with breathlessness in the hospital or in your practice, what does that indicate to you, Grant, about the heart? I often need to keep a very wide series of conditions in mind, and I also have to keep an open mind. But ultimately, if someone's breathless, I take it quite seriously because often people don't do enough exercise to 
generate breathlessness in our community. And then to become breathless with minimal exertion normally indicates that things are quite serious and we have to really get on board and start doing some testing. And often people say, oh, I'm just getting unfit and I'm just getting older and don't worry about it, Doc. And just my GP was just worried about this and I'm just here to satisfy them. But usually there's a good reason that the general practitioner has referred the patient and that we really need to take things seriously and really exclude problems. So Wajid, what does a patient presenting with breathlessness indicate to you about the respiratory system? Look, as uh, Grant said it already, we always keep a wide differential. Uh, but from respiratory point of view in particular, uh, when as outpatient people, patients get referred to me, when we ask them questions in the history to see what they were able to do and what they're not able to do now and that kind of activity make them short of breath. Uh, and that's a good indication to say, although people normally put it to we're getting elder, I'm not as fit. Uh, and you will find that most of the time they would have underlying lung diseases such as they would have been smokers, would be developing uh, chronic airway diseases or similar other lung diseases and we normally investigate them then uh, with chest x-rays and especially if their oxygen levels are not good, and then that's a worrying sign for us. Would you say there's any specific telltale signs that breathlessness is related to the heart? The main one is really whether there's postural breathlessness. So if someone is lying flat and becomes very breathless and needs to prop themselves up with a number of pillows, that's usually a good sign that there's a degree of heart failure and with fluid retention. The problem being that, as you know, when people lie flat, their fluid pump pulls into their lungs and they become very distressed in the middle of the night. And that's one of the telltale signs. Obviously, a deteriorating exercise tolerance where people can walk less far as time progresses. And if that happens quite quickly, that's usually a telltale sign that things are bad from my end. Okay. And Wajid, what about any specific telltale signs that points towards respiratory condition? Yeah, so look, from respiratory point of view, again, shortness of breath when it is also associated with other symptoms, such as if they have wheeze associated with it and cough, and they have low oxygen uh, levels when we check their oxygen level, that tells us that their lung uh, tissues involved now, and it needs further investigations with imaging and blood tests, yeah. When a patient visits us in our general practice uh, complaining of breathlessness, as GPs, we generally try to determine the underlying cause of the problem. We take a full history, examine the patient, we form an opinion about the most likely cause, then we arrange tests ourselves to confirm our suspicions and rule out other significant causes. You guys know that. These tests usually include office tests like oxygen levels, uh, blood pressure, ECG, spirometry. We can also do other tests like chest x-rays and certain other blood tests. During the current pandemic, though, it's important to exclude COVID-19 as a cause uh, and to protect all of our patients, staff and ourselves from potential exposure. Some routines and new processes we've put in place, usually these have to be done before these traditional steps can be taken. Telehealth consultations is one of the big things that we've introduced. Um, COVID-19 testing in special locations and clinics, uh, extra precautions uh, such as our PPE, masks, gloves, glass partitions, social distancing in our waiting rooms, they're some of the examples that we've put in place in general practice. In many situations and for many problems, we as GPs can manage the cause of patients' breathlessness. There are multiple occasions, though, where we have to refer our patients on to you guys, to cardiology or respiratory consultants for more specialised testing, diagnosis and management. Uh, in these circumstances, 
We will certainly provide our patients with referral letters outlining our thoughts and concerns and our management to date, including the results of the various tests. And then we ask our consultant colleagues to uh, further assess and manage our patients. So for our GPs out there listening, is there anything else that you'd suggest that we do, Grant, other than what I've just said? I find that the general practitioners in this area actually do an amazing job of assessing their patients and, and referring appropriate patients for care. And I think the process you outlined very much reflects what um, your colleagues do. I feel that there is some initiatives that the government has been bringing in regarding heart checks for patients, which are very useful. I don't think patients fully have been able to get on board and, and use those services because of the disruption that COVID has caused. I think the telehealth initiatives have been excellent and I've been using those, but ultimately I'll be looking forward to face-to-face -face medicine getting back to some sort of normality. And I think at the moment there's a lot of contingencies that we're doing to try to make things work. And as long as we um, continue to work as a team and stay on top of these complex times. And it, I've found that there's ebbs and flows in the work as well. There was a period through COVID where things got very quiet because people weren't presenting for assessment. Whereas now everyone's worried about Christmas and they all want to get in before Christmas. And it's been an incredibly busy time in my practice. So it's trying to manage the work to a sustainable level and trying to keeping lines of communication open. Thanks. So why did what about from your point of view? Can you give us some clues as to other things that you might expect GPs to do uh, before referring on to you? Look, I think, Michael, you mentioned most of the things, and it also helps us when all these basic investigations are done uh, at the GP setting. Most of the patients do get managed at GP setting well. Uh, occasionally, we see patients that these investigations uh, demonstrate certain pathology which uh, cannot be managed effectively at the GP setting and we get referrals such as uh, lung cancers or significant infection or undifferentiated pathology. And those one do need referral. We see them, we do then further uh, investigations. Some of them are invasive, some are non-invasive. Uh, with regards to in the current COVID setting, initially when we were not too much aware of the COVID pandemic and the details of it, people were panicking and we were doing a lot of telehealth as well, just to avoid unnecessary presentations to the hospital. However, I found in my practice now, people are more coming now into face-to-face -face practice. However, we do follow the hospital and the state policy with regards to social distancing, mask, how many people at one time can be in the room. Thanks, Wajid. What's the place of telephone conversations between the GPs and you guys? Wajid. Look, I have a close uh, connection with the GPs in the area and particularly who do regular referrals to this particular hospital. At times they do phone conversations and particularly if there's things which needs to be clarified between the GP and us. And I think it's very important to maintain that uh, relationship for continuation of care. Uh, and I do that pretty regularly. And I found it useful as well. Sometimes I need clarification if medication has stopped and changed and this patient was referred to a different consultant. What was the reason for that? So we do do that. And particularly people who are admitted with us and when we discharge them and certain thing needs to be changed by GPs, we make that phone call to make sure and there's that continuation of care. Brad? I find that when I have a phone conversation with the GP, it, there's a personal touch and also an understanding of where their thoughts lie and where my thoughts lie. And often also the GPs are very reluctant to, they know we're busy practitioners and they will not disturb us 
for anything that's not significant. And often they will call us up if there's something urgent and it can fast track the care of a patient who's in dire straits. It's been very useful at times to help, you know, expedite the care of someone who's very sick who may have waited weeks or months to get attention. Otherwise, if we'd gone through the, the administrative channels, so to speak. I can add a small story to it. <laughs> so even say the other day, I was referred to this 89 years old patient who was really struggling in the community with chest pain and GP did a CT chest to see what's happening. And he had extensive disease in his lungs, which has progressed. And he gave us a call and sent an urgent referral. And we saw the patient exactly the same day and he got admitted to hospital. So coming to your question, yes, we do have that relationship with GPs. If they need urgent attention of patient, it makes it a lot easier for them. It certainly makes a great therapeutic relationship from our point of view as GPs as well. So let's just go and talk about a couple of patient-specific things, okay? Because we've got patients who are listening to our podcast as well, community members. So if people are experiencing breathlessness, when should they see a GP or a physician? I think they should always see a GP or physician, Michael. I think breathlessness ultimately is a sign that there's what we call a mismatch between what your body's demand is and what your body is able to cope with and what you're doing. So there's a problem there. If you're feeling breathless all the time, there's got to be a problem, whether it's just something like out of condition or whether there's something serious underlying it. That remains to be seen by the investigations and assessment we do. But ultimately, it's a sign that your body's not happy and it needs to be looked at straight away and you need to make changes in your life if you're breathless. Roger, a lot of your patients are probably breathless as an underlying condition. When should they act if things have changed? If somebody's feeling breathless uh, when they're doing the same activities which they were able to do comfortably before, so something has changed in their body and that means it's a warning sign and they need medical attention, they need to see their GP and then we take it from there. Okay, from the cardiology point of view, Grant, what's the worst case scenario associated with breathlessness? Look, uh, occasionally there'll be patients who won't necessarily, say, develop chest pain. People like diabetics, for instance, they won't have chest pain, but they'll have severe breathlessness as a sign that the heart is in dire straits and there's not enough blood flow to the heart. They've probably got a number of blocked arteries that could kill them at any time with this heart attack. The worst case scenario is that someone, I'm terrified by the idea that someone would die waiting to see me in that situation and and that getting back to your previous question that's when I really want the GP to advocate and get on the burner and say to me look you need to see this person today or someone else needs to see them but they need to get urgent attention that's the worst case scenario that someone would die waiting for me. And from the respiratory point of view Wajid what's the worst case scenario what's the worst conditions that can present as breathlessness? Uh, look, people who had history of asthma, and in particularly when they face situations such as the recent bushfires, and if they think that their symptoms are getting worse, their chest is getting tight, uh, they should really seek urgent medical attention because things can deteriorate very quickly. And these are conditions which we can easily manage both uh, at GP and particularly at hospital settings. So seeking urgent attention when you start feeling short of breath, wheezy, cough, chest tight, that's the time to go and seek medical attention, yeah. Okay, so can you guys tell me about a couple of cases, one from each, about when your uh, both expertise is required for the one patient? Majid? Look, the common ones are basically people who have, uh, I would say, two kind of patients. Number one is uh, people who had uh, chronic airway diseases, and 
then they developed right-sided heart failure because of that chronic respiratory failure, and they developed heart failure signs that we share those patients. And other common, as we mentioned in the start of the interview, is obesity, and people will develop complications of that. Grant will talk about it. And then we get they refer them to us for sleep studies and managing that while they're looking at the cardiac complications from untreated obstructive sleep apnea and the setting up obesity. Yeah, look, if someone's smoked a lot of the time, they'll have risk for heart disease and they'll have a degree of lung disease. And it can be quite tricky to tease out that difference. And, and we do have a number of tests that will help us make that call. But often it can you know, really take some thinking and some investigation to get that looked at and sorted out. So those patients provide a particular challenge. You guys work together, phone conversations and so on, often? Yes. Yeah, look, we're, we're always in contact. I think Wadget's probably sick of me at times. But no, we do share a good therapeutic relationship and there's a small group of us here at Hawkesbury Hospital, so we're all rubbing elbows quite regularly. So let's uh, touch on COVID-19 at the moment. We've all seen a decrease in our patients accessing care. As you've said, Roger, things are changing perhaps a little bit at the moment. But can you tell me from your respective perspectives uh, why it's so vital that people do continue to come and get help when they're experiencing breathlessness or other such conditions that are associated with your expertise? As I alluded to earlier, when COVID first hit, there was a period where people were too scared to come to the hospital, I should say, sorry as patients. And there was a period where I think things, so to speak, festered in the community and people got very sick during that period. And now we're seeing the after effects of that where quite unwell patients are presenting for care and it's taking a lot more time and effort to sort out their problems now, which are more evolved and more progressed. And you know, it takes more of us to really do more to get things back on track. And I have to say to you, sadly, I think some people have lost their lives, not because of COVID, but because of the fear of COVID, so to speak. From my point of view, sometimes uh, people did not seek help and it delayed the diagnosis of other conditions. Uh, and then when they presented two or three or four months later, they really had other problems such as lung cancer or other respiratory problems or cardiac problems, which were leading to their shortness of breath. Uh, and people, you know, because of the scare that they will contact the disease, uh, delayed their presentation. But I think things are getting slowly better now that, that people are more aware of it. And as I said, my teleconferencing and phone uh, consultation has significantly reduced and a lot of people are now coming more face-to-face -to -face consultation. So we've seen lots of different impacts of COVID on how we operate and on the, the acute illness itself and on the delayed diagnosis for other conditions, like you've said. But there's this other condition called long COVID, the after effects, if you like, of COVID disease. Wajid, what can you tell us about that? Majority of people, if you look at all the studies which came out from the China and also now from the US and the European, most of the people who have mild disease, they recovered well after within 14 days. A small percentage of people who had severe disease and they recovered, they were left with some sequelae of the underlying organet affected in particularly the lungs. But I think it's still early. The disease is just like not that old to see what will be the long-term sequelae of these people when they've been followed for many years. I can just quote an example of one patient. He contracted COVID, went into respiratory failure, admitted to ICU, and subsequently he also got pulmonary as well as deep wind thrombosis. And I saw him later 
he recovered well from that. But again, it needs to be seen. We closely follow them to see what would be the after effects. And all these people will look at the studies uh, to for, you know, when they will be published, we'll know more about it. There's been a number of studies that have come out in a number of the high impact uh, cardiac journals showing that there's a lot of um, residual effects of cardiac um, involvement in people who've had COVID. They think up to two thirds of patients have evidence of cardiac MRI changes. And the majority will recover, but the number of those people will go on to problems like cardiomyopathy, which leads to heart failure, which is a huge burden in our community. And one of the causes of breathlessness, seeing that we're on the topic of breathlessness. And I'm quite worried that we're going to see a wave of cardiac problems that we haven't seen the like of before if COVID really takes a hold in our community. So I take it it's pretty important if we have had patients who've had COVID that we really enter them into pretty much a long-term follow-up not just simply say you're over it. Yeah, absolutely. Plus there's all the risks of thrombosis acutely and that and cardiac involvement that we need to look at. Okay, so let's just change tack a little bit, guys. So you've both been working in this area for a long time. Uh, in your opinion, Wajid, why is it that residents of the Hawkesbury have higher instances of, in your case, of chronic lung disease? It's again, it depends uh, on the demography of the population. So elderly population, and if they've been chronic smokers, in addition to that, low socioeconomic status and have not uh, sought medical attention early. So then they develop these chronic diseases and the burden is heavy, and particularly in, the, in this district because we have aging population and they have other comorbidities. And I think that's the main reason. In addition to what Wajid reported, I think, which is very important, there's also the issue of health literacy and a lot of the local population may not have the same level of health literacy that some of other parts of Sydney have got. And that's often due to, say, educational background or exposure to health literacy services. And we need to really try to help our community to understand the warning signs are and what the things that they need to do are to look after themselves more effectively. I'd also add, interestingly, stoicism. I reckon we've got a lot of stoic people in our community who've grown up in this area and they've been pretty self-reliant throughout their life simply because of circumstance of living in this area. Yeah, and look, I agree with that. I think there's a peculiarity of this area in that it was in some ways more like a country area for many years. And you see, particularly in the older population, who've had little farms, for instance, over the years, they put up with a lot of suffering before they come to see us, often too much. Can you outline from each of your perspectives the options that people who are who recognising that their breathlessness is coming on, what are the options they've got, Wajid, from the respiratory point of view for seeking help? Look, I think the first point of contact, I think, should always be presenting to their local general practitioners because they would have seen them before and they would know them well. And once they do the initial investigation, then they can refer them to specialist services. This is for people who have mild symptoms. On occasion, people uh, would have severe symptoms which they will develop too quickly, and I don't think they should delay that and they should present them to emergency department, should have it assessed, and then we take it from there in those cases. I've had a couple of patients who will wait to see me even when they have severe symptoms and that is a real problem. I think I've had a couple of experiences where I've had to basically resuscitate someone in my office and that's never pleasant. So I would strongly agree with Wajid's comment about if someone has severe symptoms to 
to make use of the excellent emergency services we have. The other thing I want to mention is the GP respiratory clinic. So as part of the federal government's response to the COVID environment, they have set up around the country specific purpose, what are called GP respiratory clinics, which are different from the COVID swab clinics that the state government has set up and the pathology companies have set up. The GP respiratory clinics are designed to be staffed by general practitioners to see patients with respiratory symptoms who are therefore suspicious for COVID and will assess them and treat them as well as swab them in those respiratory clinics. So I think it's worth remembering that the GP respiratory clinics are continuing. We have one in Windsor, we have one in the Blue Mountains, we have one in Penrith as well. So there's access points uh, and patients can book online to go to those clinics. The other thing that uh, we've got here in the Hawkesbury is the CALM program for the COPD patients. Would you, would you just speak about that? Yes, yeah, so we uh, have a very good program, which is run by very professional physiotherapists and uh, clinical nurses. And I refer almost every of my patients with the moderate to severe COPD, and the feedback from all of them is like really good. And also we get a lot of referral from general practitioners, and I know you're very actively involved in it as well. And I think because of the COVID, we have now reduced the number of patients we can get together, and there's a waiting period. Uh, but I think the program is there and uh, we should make good use of it. And there are good literature on it. People with moderate to severe obstructive airway diseases benefit from these programs in addition to medical management. Just looking ahead, guys, do you foresee uh, circulatory and chronic respiratory diseases and the rates of these diseases in our region rising or falling? When I was a medical student and junior medical officer in the last millennium, I remember seeing uh, patients who were 80 years of age and there was a feeling, oh, wow, you know, they got to 80. Now that's quite a common age group to see and we're seeing people well into their 90s and we're intervening and trying to treat more of those um, illnesses and those patient group. And people aren't being cured. So what we're actually seeing is a control of the symptoms. So we're treating more and more patients who are learning to live with their illnesses. And I feel that's the that sort of living with your morbidity is what we're seeing a lot of now. And that is probably on the rise. But there's always innovation and better approaches to care. So I think the tele conferencing, whilst it's not as good for seeing a new patient, has great value in ongoing care. And that's been definitely a help. And then there's the rise of things like home monitoring for cardiac patients. I'm sure there's other monitoring for other conditions, but in particular for cardiac patients. And I'm giving a talk actually to the Asia Pacific Heart Rhythm Society about home monitoring for cardiac issues on the weekend. And there's so many new devices out there that can look at things like fluid retention and heart rate control and other issues that can give us early warnings that better than maybe some of the reporting of some of the patients who are prone to stoicism, as you said. So there's all these new innovations coming, and I think they're going to make a difference as we get better expertise at using these tools. Fantastic. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We've had a, an interesting discussion about breathlessness. I guess if we could leave our listeners with one final and vital message, it's uh, continue to access medical treatment and don't delay. So thanks, everyone. This is Dr. Michael Crampton signing off until the next instalment of Healthy Hawkesbury. Thanks for listening to Healthy Hawkesbury. If you'd like to learn more about our hospital, doctors and services, please head to sjog.com 
www.healthyhawksbury.org.au forward slash Hawkesbury or subscribe to Healthy Hawkesbury on your favourite podcast app.